Well, uh, good morning. Um, a few weeks ago, as Jared was out in Arizona, I had the opportunity to write the devotional, and uh, it followed his sermon, um, and it's a, it's a passage, there's a promise embedded in a, in a verse. It's not a rhetorical question. Uh, it's, if God is for us, who can be against us? And I think oftentimes we overlook that four little words, God is for us. And as I was thinking about what to speak on today, to me, there's a, there's a twin truth to that, uh, and it's Emmanuel. It's God is with us. So if God is with us and God is for us, what do we have to fear? So that's what, uh, that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, Emmanuel, God with us. Now, about Emmanuel, um, we first noticed the word in the book of Isaiah. Uh, it's found in a popular verse, and we're all familiar with it here at Christmas time. We sing about it. We, we read about it in the Christmas stories. Um, it's a word that describes the incarnation. Again, most of us are familiar with the passage uh, where God offers um, to give a sign, a promise of a sign to come. And it's uh, found in verse 714. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be pregnant. She will have a son and she will name him Emmanuel. So the Lord himself will give you a sign. That sounds like a wonderful promise. And it is as we read it in Matthew chapter 1. We find in verse 23, the virgin will be pregnant. She will have a son and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So to us, it's a wonderful promise. But in the original context, as we'll see in a minute, uh, there's so much more. And I think as we examine the original context, you'll get a much more deeper appreciation at Christmas time. So th there's a lot to this prophecy. Uh, as I started, I had a very narrow scope in mind, and as I studied, it grew wider and wider. Uh, I tried my best to rein it back in, so I apologize a little if I'm a little scattered, uh, but uh, I've done my best. There's so much we could focus on in this prophecy and the, the promise and the fulfillment. Um, but as I think about it, questions such as, what does it mean to have God with us? What did it mean in Isaiah's time, and what does it mean now? But not only now, but what will it mean for us in the future? So just before we read, let's go ahead and pray real quick. I know I need it. <laughs> Father God, uh, we just lift this time up to you. Um, my thoughts are scattered. I followed two very eloquent men. Uh, Lord, just not for my sake, but for the sake of this congregation. Uh, clarity of mind, clarity of speech, so that what you would have come out of this is very clear. Uh, Lord, that it would find fertile hearts, uh, open ears, and Lord, that it's not just a bunch of cool facts, uh, but Lord, that it truly changes the way we view the incarnation uh, and what it means that God is with us. We just lift this time up to you, this message, and we just give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I mentioned a few questions. What does it mean? Those are the facts. Um, sometimes I get tired of facts. What I want to know is what does it mean to us? What should change? How should we react to the church? What should be our response to the truth that God is truly with us? Well, when we look at these um, 
questions, uh, we, I think, first, that there are some aspects that we need to consider before we go too deep into the prophecy itself. And that is that it, it's always been God's intention to dwell among his people. That's the story from Genesis to Revelation. We think of in Genesis how God, um, he, he created the Garden of Eden. He, he dwelt with Adam and Eve in person. Uh, they had fellowship uh, with one another. They were in relationship uh, until Adam and Eve. We know the story, right? Can we say forbidden fruit? Um, they sinned and they separated their, their relationship with God. Well, a few hundred years later, we go to Exodus. I don't have time to cover the passages. They're there if you want to look at them. Uh, there we read about God being with the Israelites in a pillar of smoke and a, and a pillar of fire. Uh, present with them as they traveled through the desert. But he was also with them in the tabernacle. His glory would fill the tabernacle. So God was present with the Israelites, even in their wanderings in the desert. Well, now we come to the promised land, Second Chronicles 7, uh, 1 through 3. We find that God is, again, dwelling in the tabernacle. At one point, it says that he, his glory filled the tabernacle so, so much that the, the Ministers and the musicians couldn't continue their duties in the tabernacle. So God has been with them in Genesis, in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden. He's been with them physically through the wanderings in the desert. He's with them in the promised land, in the uh, temple. And then we come to the reason for the season, right? We come to uh, the fact that God came in the flesh, uh, the incarnation. Uh, it's when Jesus left the throne room of heaven to come and uh, as the Apostle John wrote, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus came physically in the flesh. Uh, he lived with his disciples, uh, teaching, uh, eating, living life with the disciples in the flesh. Uh, Jesus returns to heaven, and one day we find that at the culmination of time, he tells us, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Uh, where I am, you will also be. So in the end of time, we again will be in Jesus's presence. Well, again, throughout the ages, it's always been God's desire to be with man, but not vice versa. It's a mistake to think that we in any way have ever desired God. We've done everything possible to alienate ourselves from him, in fact, pursuing every sort of potential substitute to fill the, the um, relational void that we feel when we when we break that relationship every effort to create and maintain a relationship has been God's doing uh, we think uh, again uh, we we think of the Garden of Eden and the apple the forbidden fruit willful disobedience uh, we think of the Israelites murmuring and complaining tempting and testing God as they wandered we think of in the promised land, uh, God repeatedly sends his prophets to warn them against their spiritual adultery and idolatry. Uh, we've always done that. That's our nature. That's what we do. Uh, we look out for what we want, uh, not what God wants the uh, majority of the time. So that's the second point just to look at real quickly that I want us to remember today for background material that mankind has continuously sabotaged the relationship between us and God. Again, the Garden of Eden, um, 
in the wilderness, in the promised land. And even today, we have things that we, we pursue. We, we don't call them Dagon or Molech or um, Asherah. We don't call them that anymore, but we, we definitely have our own God, success, wealth, material blessing. Well, our attitude, I think I, I heard an um, illustration one time, um, uh, the Michelangelo's painting in the Sistine Chapel uh, on the ceiling. There's a panel that depicts God uh, reaching out to mankind. Uh, I heard this illustration, and it's a, I think it's a perfect example uh, when we think about what it looks like for God to reach down to us. And it's God, he's separated from Adam, and he's twisted and he's straining. His, his face is intent on Adam uh, reaching, and he's outstretched finger. You, I'm sure you're familiar with the video or the, uh, the photo. Um, and he's just short. And then across the void, we see Adam lounging lackadaisically, sort of nonchalantly, and he's just sort of reaching out like um, without any real effort. And I think that's a beautiful picture. Uh, I think Michelangelo hit it right on the head of the effort, God doing everything he can to reach out to man and create the relationship and how we don't approach him with the same heart and the same attitude. So it's against that backdrop, God's desire for relationship with man and our lackadaisical attitude at best. I know you'll, you'll quibble with me. We are spiritually dead, so I should cho choose my words carefully, but in us, we have no desire to seek God. So it's against that backdrop of desire and rebellion. So I think I want to go to um, a little fuller context of the passage in Isaiah. So in Isaiah, God is offering a sign to the king at the time, Ahaz, um, who happened to be the king, and he was an evil king, as the scriptures describe him. So through Isaiah, God spoke these words to Ahaz at a time when Judah was being threatened by surrounding nations. Uh, the first three verses of Isaiah 7 talk about how Israel and Syria have uh, encroached on Judah and are threatening them at the time. Um, Ahaz is feeling very threatened. Uh, Judah at the time is, is pretty weak. Um, and when Isaiah finds Ahaz, he's at the, the well or the, um, the cistern um, preparing defensive posture for a, a potential invasion. Um, so again, Ahaz is described as a wicked king because he's not faithful to the Lord. Uh, the end of the nation of Judah is not too far away, about 130 years. Um, as we'll see in a second, the northern kingdom, Israel, is, is just about to fall. Um, but but Israel, uh, Judah is in a very difficult spot. The time is at hand uh, for, their, for their undoing, uh, and it's all because of their unfaithfulness to God. Again, the prophets throughout their history have approached them, uh, Israel, about their unfaithfulness, their idolatry, uh, and finally God's patience is just about worn out. Um, uh, they get a brief reprieve. Uh, after Ahaz comes a good king, Hezekiah, uh, a couple of bad kings, Josiah, uh, a few more bad kings, and then they go into captivity. So the time is just about up. They have gotten a brief reprieve, uh, but again, their downward spiral 
is nearly complete. So King Ahaz, at this time, is facing a very uncertain future. The country's in decline, and they face powerful enemies. That's important to keep in mind when we get to uh, verse 14. So it's in this context that uh, the Lord sends Isaiah with a message of hope meant to encourage and reassure Ahaz. So verse 7, 4, I think I went too far, yep. Um, Isaiah is told by the Lord to go to Ahaz with a message and tell him, make sure you stay calm, don't be afraid, don't be intimidated by these two stubs of smoking logs or by the raging anger of Rezin, Syria, and the son of Ramalia. So again, it's Syria and the nation of Israel uh, coming against Judah. And God's message through Isaiah is, take heart, don't be afraid. The word he uses, uh, well, we'll get there. Uh, So I'm going to forward to verse 9. After spending the intervening verses, 4 4 through 8, trying to bolster and encourage Ahaz, God has Isaiah tell Ahaz, if you don't believe, you will not endure. Pretty simple statement. If you do not believe, you will not endure. Other versions, if your faith does not remain firm, then you will not remain secure. So it's all about Ahaz trusting in the Lord. Well, we we know Ahaz, because the scripture says, is a wicked king. So the chances of him acting in faith are pretty slim at this point. But we shouldn't be surprised by this message, right, about faith if your faith remains firm, because we, we hear it in uh, Hebrews. Hebrews eleven six. what is faith? It's the evidence of things not seen. Without faith, is it possible to please God? No, because he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So this concept, this thought, is not unique to the Old Testament. We, we have the same um, um, God, God encourage us in the same way. Have faith, have faith, trust and believe. So again, it's in this context that the Lord tells Ahaz to ask for a sign, even a miraculous one, to test what he is about to, uh, what he's saying is about to come. So that's verses 10 to 11. Uh, God tells Ahaz, look, this is coming. Um, I'll even give you a sign uh, so that you'll know what I'm saying is true. You will not fall to Israel and, and Syria. You don't get a better invitation than that, do you? I can only other think of one other place in the scriptures where God says, test me now in this, and that's in our giving. Only one other place where God invites that testing that I can think of. Um, now, I know Gideon also asked for a miraculous sign. Um, God gave it, was gracious and gave it to him. Uh, but God does not give this invitation lightly. Um, so what is, what is Ahaz's reaction? God tells you, I will give you a sign that you will not fall. Ahaz says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to test. He says, I don't think so. <laughs> Sounds very pious, doesn't it? Because even in, when Jesus was in the wilderness, what did he say? He responded to Satan, do not test the Lord your God. It sounds like a pious thing. I will not test the Lord. But again, remember Ahaz's character. Ahaz is a wicked king. He has no intention of honoring the Lord. So in this case, uh, and, and you see Isaiah is just becomes incensed at Ahaz's re- response, and it seems a little odd if you don't know the background. 
So what is he accusing God of exactly? Well, verse 13, Isaiah said, listen well, you royal family of David. Isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you exhaust the patience of my God as well? A has no intention of bending his knee to God. He has no intention of um, asking God for a symbol because if he does and God grants it, Ahaz is then obligated to God, isn't he? He has a responsibility to, to honor God and his faithfulness. So Ahaz isn't even going to go there. He's not even going to ask for the sign. He would just as soon fall, apparently, uh, than to bow his knee to God. And I think sometimes we look at that. Um, it was in his interest to, to bow his knee, um, and, he, and he knew that he needed uh, to know that God was with him, but unfortunately he didn't want to know. So you need to pay attention here because this is going to be important when we get to Matthew. Um, the idea that we need something, but that we won't accept it because we don't want to. See, because despite Ahaz's refusal to ask for a sign, the Lord again had Isaiah to tell him that a person, a young child named Emmanuel, God with us, would come. So the prophecy is that a child would be born to a, a young, okay, I'm lost. Uh, a child would be born to uh, a young maiden in uh, Israel, and that by the time he was old enough to know right from wrong, Syria and Israel would be swept away, and that's what came to pass. Uh, within 12 years, Assyrians had come and they had completely annihilated um, uh, the Syria, Syria and Israel. So even though Ahaz was not faithful, God was still faithful. Uh, he was faithful to provide a sign and he was faithful to accomplish uh, what he said he would. So uh, again, in the context of Isaiah, the sign of Emmanuel, God with, with us, it's a judgment on Ahaz for his lack of trust and faith. It's not a symbol of hope. It's a, it's a symbol of judgment. So if Emmanuel, God with us, was true, then why would he have feared his enemies? Again, I, Mark or, or um, Daryl, very eloquently, the omniscient, omnipotent creator of the universe had the situ situation well under control. Nothing we have to do when God says he's going to do something, he'll do it. We just need to trust. So we read about Ahaz and we wonder, <laughs> what was Ahaz thinking? Uh, isn't it true that oftentimes we, we face the same choice? Uh, trust God or, or don't. Uh, Mark just now listed the attributes of God uh, in the midst of relational crisis. Do we trust God? Health concerns, do we trust God? COVID was a pretty challenging thing. A lot of people lost their jo jobs, and I don't mean to minimize it, but we had a choice there too. Do we trust God, or do we go our own way and try to fix it ourselves? So the point is that Ahaz did not believe the sure word from the God. Um, if he didn't believe it, he wouldn't survive the situation. So the sentences can be read in a positive way too, because if you believe, if he would have believed, he would have found security and safety in the Lord. So we all have that choice. We can believe and find peace and security, or we can disbelieve and we can struggle 
uh, with doubt and all the other negative emotions that, that can come with that. So the context of Isaiah is what is known as a, a near fulfillment of prophecy. Oftentimes in, in scripture, we find that when the a prophet would get a, a, a prophecy, it had immediate contextual um, um, application, uh, but then it also has a, a far application. Um, in this case, it was directly to Ahaz, and again, it was a, a message of judgment. Um, it doesn't refer to Jesus at all in Isaiah. It's an unknown um, uh, virgin and an unknown child as a sign being used there. Uh, but again, are we really unlike Ahaz in this way? I mean, we've been given several marvelous promises, um, like the following. It says, loving God means obeying his commands, and God's commands are not too hard for us, because everyone who is a child of God conquers the world, and this is the victory that conquers the world, our faith. Again, will we operate in faith, trusting the word of the Lord? If we operate in a faithful obedience, blessing awaits, and we need not fear what man can do because we trust in the Lord. And also like Ahaz, not only do we trust, but there are still those who will not acknowledge God. Uh, they just will not bend the knee. Uh, I was talking to someone recently about um, Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hand of, of an angry God. Uh, if you're in doubt, read that. <laughs> um, go to Romans 1, um, chapter, verse 18 uh, through 28, how people willfully reject the Lord. It still happens. Well, fortunately, Isaiah's prophecy moves from judgment to salvation and from punishment to pardon. Now, I mentioned it, prophecy has a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. So we move to the far fulfillment. So you just flash forward about 700 years um, to the nation of Israel. And it's interesting that we find them in much the same situation that we found Ahaz. They're under foreign occupation. We have a, a foreign king, Herod. Uh, Roman rule, um, God's been silent for 400 years. Satan is running amok, as he is now, taking captives, uh, slaves to sin. Uh, we find a, a pretty bleak situation, and that's where we find Matthew as use of, of, of Isaiah's prophecy. In Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 1, verses 22 to 23, uh, Matthew quotes the Old Testament prophecy. He says, all this happened to bring about what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be pregnant, she will have a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, thankfully, uh, again, because it was used as a judgment the first time, we have the preceding verse that sets up sets up the hope, and it changes the prophecy from a judgment to a promise. So Matthew one twenty one, we read, She will give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, because he will save his people from his sins. Well, the first thing that strikes me is, did Mary and Joseph make a mistake? Is he Emmanuel or Jesus? It's, the name is curious because it doesn't exactly match the prophecy. Um, in, in, in the use of the term Emmanuel. So 
Um, uh, Isaiah uses it as an un, in, in the terms of an unnamed child, unnamed virgin. Um, here we know it was Mary. We know it was Jesus. So it doesn't match exactly. Um, another thing we need to consider too is, as Mark said, uh, a lot of the terms we use for God, for Jesus, they're descriptive of who he is. It's not, a, it's not an attribute, it's who he is. And so in this case, Emmanuel, it's descriptive of the person, Jesus. Jesus' name gives us a glimpse into the heart of the Father, though. It's not judgment. Jesus means God saves. So if Emmanuel means that God is with us, and Jesus fulfills the Emmanuel prophecy, then that means that Jesus is God, and God is with us. He is here to save us. Jesus saves. God is with us is only good news if God comes to rescue us to atone for our sin. Had Mary's son been called Emmanuel, then there could be a question behind the meaning of God with us. Is he here to judge us or is he here to save us? By giving him the name Jesus, God saves, it puts an exclamation point behind that. God is with us. So as verse 21 says again, you shall call his name Jesus, just to emphasize a point. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Well, Isaiah 9, in Isaiah 9, the son that is mentioned in Isaiah 7, 14 is explained to be the righteous son of David who will bring light into the darkness. The people walking in darkness see a bright light. Light shines on those who live in the land of deep darkness. Why is that important? Well, we know from Scripture that Jesus refers to himself self as, I am the light of the world. The rest of the passage in Isaiah 9 talks and speaks about how he will rule with justice, with goodness, and love. And again, I don't have the time to develop the idea of light, but if Jesus is the light of the world, he says that whoever follows me will not live in darkness, but will have the light that gives life. So again, we have the promise that Jesus saves. We don't have to walk in the darkness of sin, but we can be brought into the light. Well, the rest of Isaiah's gospel then explains how this peace between God and man will be achieved all through the gospel of Isaiah. Um, one of my favorite passages I had the opportunity to speak on last year sometime, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Beautiful passage. Yet it was our weakness he carried, it was our sorrows that weighed him down, and we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Jesus has done all the work for us. If you think of that picture from Michelangelo, how God is straining, doing everything he can to reach Adam and Adam's lackadaisical attitude, this is what proves God's love for us. This is God at his finest straining, doing everything he possibly can to restore right relationship with mankind. It begs the question, what should we do? And like Ahaz, we see too many willfully rejecting that offer. 
We have others who will gladly go into the light. So in this way, the bad news of ancient Israel becomes good news for the world. When God sends Emmanuel, Jesus, into the world, it's only through Jesus that we have hope to escape the eternal punishment. And for the believer, there are other benefits too. Now, I left out one instance uh, of God dwelling among us. The astute Bible scholars in here will realize that I did not mention Pentecost. Because even now, God is dwelling with men. It marked the moment that the Spirit of God came to dwell in the hearts of men. So not only do we have God with us, we have the benefit of God in us. So this leads me to the next point this morning. What are the benefits and responsibilities we have as hosts to the Spirit of God? I just want to examine a few. Time is short. I don't have to go through time to go through a lot of them. So this is a very brief, very brief list. Mark mentioned several already. already. We have joy. We have hope. We have love. Uh, I would like to take just the opportunity, since we're in Isaiah, just to go back and flesh out uh, a benefit listed in Isaiah 9.6. It says, for us, uh, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Again, every one of those is not just an attribute of God, it's who God is. So we have, because of the Holy Spirit, access to all of these things, God living in us. So we look at first wonderful counselor. What is the benefit of a wonderful counselor being with us? Again, just briefly, uh, think of Isaiah 11 too. And the spirit of, God, of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Every one of those are available to the Christian. Wisdom, ask for it, the scripture tells us, and you'll receive it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Every one of these attributes are available to us. We've been given the Spirit who leads us into all truth. He guides us and directs us. He gives us wisdom, and He leads us to the desire of the Lord. He grants understanding of the Word. Um, Jesus is full of mercy and compassion. He's not harsh and condemning when we approach Him. He is an advocate before the Father. He leads us uh, in the way of righteousness, and because of Him we can resist evil and the pull of temptation and sin in our lives. We don't have to walk in sin. The next attribute, mighty God. Psalm 18.2 came to mind. I don't think I, oh, I did. The Lord is my rock, my protection, my savior. My God is my rock. I can run to him for safety. He is my shield and my saving strength, my defender. God with us is the one who created and sustains everything. The one who has power over all things has promised to be a shield and a fortress for us. He is the one who has promised to fight our battles on our behalf. We have our protector who is able to save us to the utmost. Next attribute is everlasting father. 
Now, the first thing, the, this verse is not saying that Jesus and the Father are one and the same. Uh, the sense in the original language is that Jesus is the source, source and author of all eternity. And it's because in him is eternal life, we can too also have eternal life. So we write you now about what has always existed, which we have heard, we have seen with our own eyes, we have looked at and we have touched with our hands. We write to you about the word that gives life. That's John 1.1. 1, 1. Prince of Peace. This is probably the easiest of them all, isn't it? Jesus is the one who makes peace possible between men and especially between God and men. He was given the ministry of reconciliation and he has given us the same ministry. Jesus' peace is both a spiritual peace that he offers as a special gift to only believers and it's also the peace that we can have when we abide in him, in prayer, in harmony with one another. And we can find rest in him in quietness and trust. Uh, again, just as God is love, Jesus is peace. And it's available to us through the Holy Spirit that indwells. John 14, 27 says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give it to you as the world does. Do not let your hearts be distressed or lacking in courage. My peace I give to you. It's an attribute of, of Jesus and we have direct access to it. Well, the question then, this was Isaiah. This is 2,700 years ago. Has God changed? Can we still trust him? The answer to the first is emphatically no. Uh, the second answer to the second is emphatically yes, we can still trust him. So. He's not changed. So my question, why do we then sometimes act effectively as if he did? If he is the same and he is with us, we have the same claim to the promise that he gave Joshua. As Joshua was assuming leadership of the nation of Israel, the Lord reassured him, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. God is with us and God is for us. We can and should trust him at all times. That means when we're in the midst of any hardship, of any trouble, God is there, God is for us, God is with us. Trust him. So, I'll just close with this. In light of the many benefits that we receive because of Emmanuel, what responsibilities do we have because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? The saving act of Jesus coming in the flesh and dying for us, what responsibilities do we have? What does God ask in return? What is the natural act of worship? Romans 12:1 comes to mind. You don't have to remember a lot of verses in life. Some of them just speak to everything. Romans 12 is one of them. In view of his great mercy, offer yourself a living sacrifice. That is your reasonable act of worship. Obedience, trust, faith. That's all he's asking. I also think of the Westminster Catechism, the first question. See if anybody can answer it. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God, thank you, and enjoy Him forever. 
How do we glorify God? I'll give you just a couple, and then I'll close. One is to produce spiritual fruit. One is to worship him through our words, thoughts, and actions. Give generously. Love others well. And obey what we know. So the idea of obedience as an act of worship and glorifying God, that's my prayer as we leave this place. Just that you trust and obey, for there is no other way, right? God is faithful. He is with us. He is for us. We can face anything, just as Joshua did. Do not be afraid. Be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified. The Lord will be with you wherever you go. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the words. Uh, God, I just pray that, again, it found receptive fields. Uh, Lord, that I did not hinder your word, that it came across and it found its mark. As you say it will, your word does not return void. Lord, we just give thanks for this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.